I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're excited to welcome Sean Amin, a PhD candidate in political science, with particular emphasis in comparative politics and political methodology. Sean, who received his BA in mathematics from Williams College in 2015, is teaching a seminar on LGBTQ politics in world democracies for the department this term. We will ask Sean about his class, as well as talk to him a little bit about his own academic and professional background. We will, of course, also talk about LGBTQ politics globally and in relation to each other. We learned so much during this discussion, and we hope you will too. First of all, I just want to say thanks for joining us today. It's really exciting to talk with you. Let's start broadly and just kind of um, talk about how you got started in terms of your background and maybe getting into what you were studying in your college undergrad at Williams College. So did you go into your undergrad knowing that you wanted to pursue a math major? I know that's kind of unique for the type of work you're doing now. (laughs) No. um, So college can be pretty circuitous. I had actually initially planned on majoring in music and chemistry, um, which feels like a long time ago. Uh, For both poli-sci and math, I had an amazing professor in each department and their passion really pulled me towards the subject. Um, That's also when I first began to consider teaching at a university, going to graduate school, because I don't have any family members who are in academia, which is not so common for people in graduate school. Yeah, it was a, a bit touch and go between the two subjects for a while, but took a significant course load in poli-sci, mostly international relations, and I also took a lot of political science adjacent courses, history, sociology, economics. And were you always interested in politics outside of an academic lens, or was it only when you got to college that became more of an interest? I I think I was interested, but I wasn't all that informed. I, I didn't go to a very good school system, but one of the things that my history teacher in 10th grade said to me that really affected me very strongly was he described the news as living history. I think when I was in high school, I really liked history, but that with that approach, I began taking more of an interest in what was going on around me, and that maybe led me to where I'm not. Looking a little bit forward, you were also a senior consultant at uh, Booz Allen Hamilton in Washington, D.C. I feel like I pronounced yeah. that No, wrong. no, no, you got it. I got it? Okay. Wow impressed with myself. Uh, But can you tell us a little bit about how you came to have that position and the work that you did as a consultant there? So by my senior year, I was pretty sure that my long-term goal was to go into a PhD program because I had a few professors badgering me to go get that. But a math undergraduate program can be pretty brutal. And I heard that PhD programs were not easy either. So I wanted a job to punctuate that. Also, there are sort of... I didn't like the idea of being a lifetime student because, frankly, I didn't know that I would be able to have the chops to handle the corporate world or the business world. So 
I kind of wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. So it was always sort of intended as a break for how I got into it. Careers offices are amazing. Uh, if any undergraduates are listening to this, talk to your careers office. They'll, they're very experienced with setting students up with jobs, teaching them how to interview. So the work, a lot of it's project management type stuff. So it's pretty boilerplate, white collar work. The, nar- the nature varied from contract to contract. So for one of them, it might be more writing year-end reports, doing edits, doing proofreading, interviewing subject matter experts. For another project, we essentially made it like a 200-point, or a 200-page slide deck, which is jargon for a fancy PowerPoint. That was just a very granular timeline for how a project was going to be implemented six months out, um, a more practical plan for what we proposed. Uh, in general, consulting is filled with a lot of turnover, so there's lots of young people, it's a really good first job. But for most of us, it was an in-between job. I don't really know anyone who stayed there longer than three years. People went to law school, to data science, to finance. I think I'm the only person I know who went directly into a PhD program, but I think lots of people went to master's programs. Yeah, it. I meant it to be a bit of a break and that's what it was. It's. I wasn't the most passionate about it because it's not nearly as creative as academia, but I got to work on some projects that I really believed in. Like I was able to work on expanding broadband access um, in rural and underserved areas in the US. And I was able to work on tackling corporate tax avoidance for the IRS. And so I felt pretty good about that. Was being in DC just a happy coincidence or was that on purpose because you already had this interest in maybe going into something political in the future as well? Um, I mean, a bit of both. So Booz Allen is a federal contractor, so our work is in DC. and. And that is part of why I was attracted to Booz Allen rather than, say, a corporate consultant that does more work with private companies. That makes sense. So you kind of talked a little bit about how that interest formed, but how did you end up studying comparative politics at UW-Madison after your time as a consultant? And then, I guess, what uh, drove you to be interested in foreign involvement and domestic political activism? UW was the best fit for my strengths and my weaknesses. Um, I had a pretty strong technical background, but something that I didn't have a lot of experience in was area studies. This university has really strong regional centers, and in general, the and the political science department allowed the faculty engage in a really deep way with fieldwork in a given context. So it was a good way to supplement areas that I was already sort of, I was on the weaker side of. I also just really got along fantastically well with my advisor, Yoshika Herrera. She really, that meeting sold me. By the time I had walked out of the room with her, I didn't even pretend that I was interested in anywhere else. For the research agenda, some people know exactly what they want to do from the get-go, and others discovered along the way. I think I'm in the second camp, but... Funnily enough, a lot of people end up going back around to what they were initially interested in. Because you start out interested in something, you go to graduate school, and then for about a year or two, you're just chasing every new cool idea that someone wrote about in a book or in a really amazing paper. And then what you end up deciding is pretty close to what you were first interested in because you've seen enough that you, about what you cared about. Initially... Um, Yeah, I'm a child of immigrants, and I grew up in a really 
poor Rust Belt heartland town. So I think I have a personal fascination with how ideas travel and how they take root. And I spent some time in college in the Middle East and we met with activists and healthcare professionals and university admins in Oman, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Palestine. And that made me really interested in the ways in which vulnerable groups make claims, how they form ideas about how they can claim their rights and how they can use and be used by foreign actors to make meaning and to define their communities. Yeah. Actually, um, what was what were some of the highlights of being in that program? What especially did you like about it? So the time in the Middle East was actually just a very quick two-week whirlwind tour through um, a charitable foundation. The idea of it was to spur interfaith understanding of issues that were going on in the Middle East. And it was aimed at people who were interested in some way working in policy or activism. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was, I I applied for it, I got in, it was the Ibrahim Leadership and Dialogue Project. I'm not sure if it's still running, but it was fantastic. They paid for everything and it really shaped some of the ways I see things. In particular, I think seeing South Asian migrant workers in the Gulf. We didn't interview them directly, but it's impossible not to notice those sorts of things happening in the background, particularly if you are South Asian. That gave me a very personal stake in how people can seek rights. So do you think that that ended up, was that one of your big moments of this is what I want to pursue like eventually in my future? I don't think it felt that way at the time. At the time I just thought, oh, this is, this doesn't feel good. (laughs) (laughs) But Afterwards, it was something that I thought about more concretely as I began looking at how people were pursuing things here. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. While we're on the topic of your background, we also have to ask about your writing for several places, including The Atlantic, The New Republic, uh, The Caravan Magazine, among others. What kinds of topics inform your journalistic writing, and is this something you still like to do? I'd say I'm kind of inactive at the moment. A few years ago, I had a disabling injury with my hands. So for about a year and a half, I couldn't really use a computer much. Uh, Through lots of physical therapy and patience, I am back to being able to work full time. But because my first job is with the university, that's I'm on hiatus for the journalistic work for now. I did like I do like freelance writing. There's sort of two separate streams of work I do. One is just monetizing topics that I'm interested in. Just <laughs> Those are usually just bite-sized stories about something about culture that I think has an interesting political angle. I try to root things in politics, try and keep all that sort of coherent. And then I do do longer form pieces, mostly with the caravan thus far, about Hindu nationalist politics in the Indian diaspora. Um, I think we're going to move a little bit into your course that you're teaching this term, which is called LGBTQ plus politics in world democracies. And we're so excited to hear that you're teaching this seminar this semester. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about the course and maybe a broad overview of like main topics or learning outcomes that you're hoping to achieve with it? Sure. So there's a lot. I'll start (laughs) with, I'll start with 
the high level and then you guys can drill for specifics. Um, I heard once a professor say at the start of a course that he was teaching the course because he wanted to learn more about it. That's something of why I'm doing this. LGBT democratic politics is a subject I've had a really intense fascination with for years, but sadly it remains a bit of a niche area of study in political science and especially in comparative politics. That's partly due to practical difficulties and ethical concerns. A lot of political science relies on the kind of large-scale analysis that is very challenging for queer populations in contexts where their activity is, like where um, organizing might be illegal or heavily restricted, where being in same-sex relationships is potentially criminalized or at the very least stigmatized. And that comes with the obvious ethical conundrums, but it's also just practically difficult. You know, it's harder to recruit people for a study if the if the organization is underground or if the person is closeted. Sample sizes are smaller. You can you can have a pretty likely idea of someone's gender or even their ethnic background in a lot of countries, but based on their name, and you can't get the same sort of information. And so, a lot of the political science that I'd seen studied the attitudes of general populations towards LGBT people. It was about acceptance, like support for various sorts of outcomes, but I wanted this course to actually center queer communities themselves. That's why I summarized the course as a comparative analysis of how LGBTQ plus people and organizations individually and collectively interact with political institutions and processes. UW already has an excellent department in genders and women's studies, so the other the contribution this is making that those won't have is that this is a true political science course. Not everything we're going to be reading is political science. We're seeing some history, some anthro, some sociology, legal reports, but we're going to be reading all of those things as political scientists. One thing that the course focuses on in particular from what we've seen is uh, four different countries, uh, the UK, Poland, South Africa, and Indonesia. So did you want to talk briefly about how each country, why you chose to include each country um, in engaging with this question of LGBTQ politics? So I was born and raised in the U.S. So are most students here. Um, so are most of my students. And it's really easy to think that the way politics work here is basically how they work everywhere. I chose countries that I thought would challenge their preconceived conception, preconceived notions the most. I also wanted to push back against some common trends in political science. The four countries I chose, the UK, South Africa, Indonesia, and Poland, are not as often covered on syllabi compared to, say, the US, India, China, Russia, Germany. So I wanted to also expose people to some new contexts. Why I chose these four? They're all major players in politics. The UK is one of obviously the world's wealthiest and most powerful countries. South Africa is one of the wealthiest and strongest states on the continent. Indonesia is the strongest state in Southeast Asia and the fourth most populous country in the world. Uh, Poland is a member state of the EU and is one of, and its sort of right-wing shift has been quite influential in pulling the tide of the EU in other ways. And a lot of it's back and forth with the European Union has been really politically interesting. And they also serve as really excellent foils for each other. The UK is a consolidated democracy, the other three are weak democracies. 
Indonesia is the world's most populous Muslim-majority country. The other three are Christian-majority. Poland is ethnically homogenous. The other three are ethnically diverse. And so there's all this sort of variation on things like state capacity, trade networks, binding international obligations that are pulling them in different directions, and that should hopefully keep us from developing any stereotypes about how queer politics should be, and should also give us a more grounded understanding of about how political institutions operate. Yeah, interesting. So how have you found uh, differences in queer politics within these four countries? What are like some of the bigger differences that you've seen? Oh my god. <laughs> so, <laughs> Deep question. So, a lot there. So many. Um, I think probably, to, to, to just land on one that is maybe very basic and quite surprising. Queer populations can be sort of sites of political controversy in most countries on this planet. But which particular members of that, those populations are the current subject of the culture war varies dramatically. I think in the United States, we have this conception that it's, for instance, there's a linear progression of first, you know, lesbian and gay populations get rights and then trans people get rights and we sort of move in that progression. But in Indonesia, for instance, um, the waria, who are not exactly trans women, it's a queer, it's a gender identity that is queer and is somewhere, somewhat related to being a drag queen and somewhat related to being a trans woman, but doesn't neatly map onto either category. There's an extensive history of them existing in Indonesia and even being celebrated in Indonesia, going back decades. It is also um, illegal right now to have same-sex relations because extramarital sex was recently criminalized in Indonesia and marriage is in Indonesia between a man and a woman. So that right there is just an inversion about how most Americans would think about like quote unquote, like some sort of progression of how rights are extended or contracted. I also, like South Africa includes many more constitutional protections for queer populations that were just baked into the constitution from the get-go, which itself is very different than is the case in many other contexts where those sorts of rights are added on after the fact or being incorporated in some new way. And that's a legacy of creating a new constitution post-apartheid and the desire to make it truly egalitarian, which there were serious failures with, but you know, it's an incredibly ambitious document. I'd love to dive a little bit more into some of these main themes that you're covering. So from the syllabus, at least, it looks like the topics range from historical legacies to visibility politics to crime and medicine and healthcare and religion and families. Um, Could we dive into just a couple of those a little bit deeper and start maybe by discussing visibility or invisibility politics as you conceptualize them in the course? Sure. So because the course is a seminar, I'm going to try and... At its simplest, visibility is being seen. If two men are holding ha- hold hands in public in Poland, they're visible. If an organization submits a registration form to a government, it makes itself more visible. If a group of men is put on a publicized trial for sodomy, they are made visible. So visibility occupies a special place in queer politics because, like I was alluding to before, queer people can 
often choose their visibility to a greater extent than members of other groups. They, you can't always choose that visibility, of course, and it's not always impossible to change, or it's not always impossible to, cha- to choose your visibility in, in certain instances. For instance, I might be slightly racially ambiguous, but no one would look at me and think that I was white. I think a bit more precisely, visibility is an opportunity and a threat. Like, so by signaling that I as an individual exist, I'm signaling to people who might join me in community and to people who might do me harm. And if an organization or movement does so, it gives outsiders a sense of your numbers and so it gives you a sense of your strength. This gives an organization more power to make demands, but it also can coalesce your opponents against you. That's really how I think about this ability. Oh, that's very interesting, actually. That's not something that, I don't know, I think I've learned about very much. So I think that that's a really interesting uh, thing to take into that seminar. Um, overall, what's your favorite part of the course to teach? So... This is my because this is my first time teaching this course, I'll have to speculate. I think I'm most excited to teach the weeks on historical legacies. All four of the countries we're studying have authoritarian legacies in recent history. The United Kingdom in its colonies, South Africa with apartheid, uh, communism in Poland, and sort of authoritarian capitalism in Indonesia. And I think that it'll be very exciting to see how history shapes the tactical decisions that organizations make now. Um, A lot of times we forget about that history because we're moving so far. We're looking to the future. We're looking to see what we can change. But as a matter of fact, a lot of those decisions, a lot of the decisions that were made early on for reasons that made sense at the time and were necessary even at the time, strategic and necessary, are now very difficult to undo in a different context. I definitely, I love that the the countries that are being studied in a comparative context are not necessarily ones we see on syllabi all the time, but Mm. (laughs) although we want to highlight those, I'm also interested in hearing a little bit about how those countries may compare to the United States today um, in terms of queer politics. Do you, I, I know that's a pretty broad question, but how do you think the U.S. relates to those four? How do we stack up? Yeah, how do we stack up? <laughs> um, so, I'm not, because I'm not a scholar of U.S. politics, in some senses, I'm a, a, just a citizen like anyone else. Um, so, the United States does have serious problems that require serious work, particularly with respect to the transgender community. Healthcare access is very difficult. We have rising waves of violence. Just yesterday, I want to say, maybe even this morning, the state of Utah banned transition care for trans adolescents over the objections of the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association, and similar bills are being discussed in other states. Um, The problems all get worse, of course, when people who are uh, from a SOGI minority are not white, things like homelessness, poverty, general health outcomes. But in comparison to the rest of the world, the U.S. is remarkably progressive on LGBT issues. It's, it, it's something which is hard to remember sometimes, but in July, England's NHS shut down their only youth gender clinic in the whole country. They're planning on creating a larger network, but many trans people are very skeptical of the proposed reforms. 
At one point, Poland had LGBT-free zones that covered a significant swath of their territory. Some journalists were estimating a quarter of their territory. And that phenomenon only began to pull back when the EU began pulling money out of the administrative districts that imposed these discriminating laws. And like I said, Indonesia just criminalized marriage between two people of the same gender. Or not marriage, sex between people of the same gender. It might just be the best of bad options, but I do think the United States looks good for the comparison. People do need energy to be involved in local politics and to be involved in their communities, and I think that it's good to know the world that we want, but it's also good to remember how far we've come. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sometimes, I can, we can be reminded sometimes by seeing how things are going in other places. I'm curious if you think that, well, I guess it seems like to me in the past couple years in the U.S., there's been maybe, maybe it's like a backlash against progress type of effect where it seems like there's more verbal slash legal opposition to things like um, gender affirmative care for especially young kids or a lot of states trying to now like redact some of their more inclusive laws. And I'm curious if A, you think that's a trend that has always been there, a backlash effect against progress, or if you think that's just happening now, and is that happening other places besides the U.S. at the same time? I'm not sure about the United States. I think, so on sort of this, because we have seen a rise in authoritarianism and strongmen the world over, and I do think that on the whole, that is harmful for queer rights. Um, I don't think democratic publics always have the best interests of minorities in mind, but when democracy slides back and rights are revoked, the vulnerable are hit first and hardest. Queer people are marginal, and many people poorly understand them, so in general, it's easy for governments to turn public fury on them, and they have been made scapegoats, and this has been used and been used cynically as distractions to distract people from preventing their or from presenting their grievances with their government. Like long before he invaded Ukraine, Putin was using homophobia to deflect criticism and turn public attention into political controversy. I do think that there is as democracy slides back, that is that is not good for queer populations generally and that it's important to try to safeguard our democracy for everyone, including and especially people who are vulnerable. So do you think that the United States um, is or can be somewhat of a trendsetter for LGBT politics around the world? Have you seen that or is it pretty, are we pretty isolated in um, how we operate in terms of LGBTQ politics here versus globally? I think that decisions that are made in the U.S. have, we're certainly not isolated, right? People notice what's happening in the United States. People notice it across the world. Um, I don't necessarily know if there's a clean relationship between as rights are protected here, they are protected everywhere, and or the opposite, right? Because for one thing, the um, progress in rights here might scare conservatives in other countries, right? They might see this as an example of what happens if things go too far, as they would put it. It can also serve as inspiration, though, for activists inside those countries who see policy gains being made and believe, and then think, we can do this too, because this was achieved somewhere else. 
Um, I also don't think that the United States has to be unique in that way. I think that countries can serve as inspirations to one another, and in that sense, they're all interdependent. Have you seen queer politics come up more on the international stage in terms of negotiations between countries? Like, a lot of times there are stipulations with international aid saying you must improve, you know, human rights, your human rights score by a few points in this specific area attached to this aid that we're going to provide. Has that come up at all? So I'm, I'm going to emphasize again that, you know, my research is not actually on queer politics. My research is on women's activism primarily. Um, I will say that, so for one of the countries that we're studying, Poland, a really significant aspect of their, of queer politics in Poland, and especially lesbian and gay politics in Poland, is in relation to the European Union. Because the European Union has a set of founding principles and has a set of core rights that they hold their member states to respect. And Poland has for some time been considered one of the, if not the most, LGBT-unfriendly states within the European Union. And as such, I was talking earlier about the LGBT-free zones. Some of them have scrapped those policies because the EU threatened to withdraw funding, or actually did withdraw funding from certain zones. Um, But that's something which... There's successes on some of those local fronts, For some of the national fronts, it can actually backfire in some ways because there is a nationalist argument to be made that there is an outside body that is interfering with our sovereign affairs and that is holding us hostage, that has more money than we do, that is more prosperous than we are, and are saying, if you don't do what we say, we will obstruct your development. And so I think that there there is a... um, there is a relationship between how capital streams flow across borders and the protection of rights, but it's not always, I think it's, it's, it's not always a, just a simple rah-rah situation. So this is definitely a topic that can be both inspirational and kind of disheartening, depending on where you're looking. Sure. But generally speaking, are you hopeful about the future of queer politics here in the U.S. and also around the world? I think... We have to be um, everywhere. There's there have been rollbacks everywhere. There have been many signs of progress, but I don't know. Pessimism's for suckers. We need to have <laughs> like if we have skin in the game, we have to be optimistic, even if it feels rational, even if it is irrational. Yeah, I like your comment about seeing the overall shape of progress and looking at you know the U.S. relative to other places is still pretty okay. You know, on some scales, I think that's a a nicer lens to look at it through sometimes. Or at least it's important to have that view and critique together. Yeah. I mean, you can... Saying saying that something is the best of a series of of a group of not great situations (laughs) is okay. Because that doesn't mean that we necessarily just have to sit where we are and decide that this is where we want to stop. Right. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you think would be important to talk about? Oh, um, if you're in Wisconsin, vote in your spring primary election, Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. <laughs> <laughs> the, I believe there's a state Supreme Court, um, up in the running, so mm-hmm. this is very important. Yeah. <laughs> do that. <laughs> Good notice to slide in. We do yeah. love that. <laughs> All right. That's it. Uh, then 
We have a bit of a fun question to add in for the end here. Uh, what's your favorite place on or around campus to get studying, class prep, dissertation writing yeah. done for you personally? If there's a couple recommendations, we'd love to hear them. Um, Historical Society Library has the best interior design. Law Library has the best windows. North Hall really just has nostalgia. <laughs> we don't have yeah. the best of much in terms yeah. of building here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe one day we'll be ADA compliant. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, I just roam around though, honestly. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. We really appreciate it. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.